2: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think.
1: Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash/host. Hello and welcome to Off the Beaten Track podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu whiffin It's another week, therefore, it's another episode. Today's episode, I sit down with Miles Hunt, Miles Hunt of the Wonder Stuff, and it's an absolutely glorious chat. When I set out to start off the beaten track, one of the people that was definitely uh, on the top of the list to uh, to speak to was Miles. I've been a huge fan of his music for a long, long time, and uh, and it was a real joy to to sit down and and discuss records with him. and uh, And you're going to love it. Um, and before we 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 actually get on with that chat, just a few. Um, shout outs quickly um, a big thanks to Screwbiz Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network um, and a massive thanks to uh, 76 for producing this podcast um, and also if this is your first time uh, listening to Off the Beaten Track then uh, can I suggest that you have a look in the archives when this episode's finished um, because there's over 150 episodes now with some of your some of your favourite musicians DJs comedians actors go and have a rummage you will find something that, uh, that you like, I promise you. And uh, and if that's not enough, then I do also have a Patreon page. And over on there, uh, I put up standalone episodes each week as well. And, and so you can go over there and access them. And and, and by doing that, you also support the podcast. Um, so you can find out about all of these things uh, on Um But let's get back to business. Um, today's episode, this gives me enormous pleasure to say, please enjoy off the beaten track podcast with miles hunt listen up i've only got another new sponsor Eggfried. it's this super cool clothing label and if you're into sort of skating and street art and gigging and, and kind of like really cool art and throwing a little bit of asian culture and and the designers kind of weird sense of humor in the mix then you're pretty much there with the wonderful world that is eggfried.com. now they do these amazing punchy kind of graphic tees, hoodies and sweatshirts, beautiful art prints. As well as this, they have a denim range, all handmade in-house, all supporting in the slow fashion movement. Not only that, they've given you a discount code, 10% off when you head over to eggfried.com. Just use the code EGGSALAD, E-W-G-S-A-L-A-D. Save 10%. Go and get lost in the world of egg fried. Also, they've got a new kids range and it's called Small Fried, and it's super cool, super cute. Um, and again, it's all over there in this wonderful world. Go and get involved at eggfried.com. It's Off The beaten & Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network with me, Stu Whipping. Hello, and welcome to Off The Beat & Track Podcast, and sitting opposite me via the means of Zoom is Miles Hunt. Hello. Hello, mate. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Appreciate your time today, mate. That's all right. Thanks for asking. Nice. Oh, uh, yeah, it's great. I, I'm really looking forward to this. I should point out, I don't know what your song choices are yet, so I'm um, I'm excited to to know what they are. Okay. But before we start, um, I just want to ask um, how uh, you miles have found the lockdown situation as as Miles Hunt the human being and as Miles Hunt the creative uh, force <laughs> is that what I am uh as a human being I
0: live on my own with my little dog and um I live very rurally I'm not really a people person I never was and as I get older I'm 54 next week I am even less inclined to spend my time with the other humans. So being on my own and being in the middle of nowhere and going for days on end without speaking or interacting with other humans is quite normal for me. So uh, I've been all right. Yeah. In fact, um, I think it's John Ronson, right at the beginning, the journalist John Ronson wrote a piece um, about... People that suffer generally with anxiety uh, go w- were heading into the, you know, the beginning of lockdown and seemingly handling it better than people that don't live with anxiety. Yeah. And it really rang true with me. It, 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 I think he he said something like, those of us with anxiety... Uh, it, it's as if we've been preparing for something like yeah, this totally. all this time and now we feel some sort of validation. <laughs> so I didn't worry about it all. My, my parents uh, are, are still with me, thank goodness, and uh, they're 80 years old, both of them, in September. And so it was very easy for me to uh, adapt the rules and regulations of lockdown because I like my parents being alive. They both have underlying health issues. And so, you know, it, I I guess I, I'm 50, 53, 54. You know, I could probably take on the virus if I cop for it myself and probably survive it. But I don't want to be responsible for the person that kills his parents was. With- <laughs> It was, was my sort of mantra. So as a, as a human being, very easy. Uh, I was also a, as a, what did you call me, a creative force? Yeah. Uh, as, a, as a creative <laughs> force, <laughs> I'm now going to, when I meet people for the first time, I'm going to inch, hello, my name is Miles Hunter. and I am a creative force. Stick it on the cv uh, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was very, very fortunate for one of the very few times in my life i got my timing right in so much as the wonder stuff released our last album around October last year and toured it, um, throughout November and December last year, we had, I had one gig I was supposed to do, uh, an acoustic gig on my own in Amsterdam in March. So I lost that. Um, that was part of the shine mini cruise festival. Mm-hmm. um, Because I'd actually earned some money at the end of last year, I wasn't wounded by losing my one uh, booked gig. I I felt the pain for the organisers and a lot of the other bands that had made their plans around it. Um, I had very close friends, uh, Ian Prowse of Pele and Amsterdam and now solo artist. He was on tour with Elvis Costello and that tour got cut short. Another dear friend of mine, Luke Johnson, who i've known since he was a child he's, he's got a band uh, called low lives rock rocking band called low lives they were out on tour in europe when the lockdown came in so they lost half a tour so i you know it, i'm so I, I feel so fortunate that didn't happen not just cuz it's my job and i and that's how i earn money but you know you you put a lot of preparation into a tour physically and psychologically so to be robbed of it Um, for such a reason Um, it must have been really really wounding for those people I was very very fortunate Um, this year I'd I'd, I'd planned to take off really there was some wonder stuff gigs booked festival wise for September Um, but because I'd spent the last two or three years pretty intensively writing music mostly and demoing and recording I thought I didn't actually believe that my well was dry but I thought there was probably a strong possibility that if I sat down to do some writing, there might not be anything left for a while. And I, so I thought, okay, I'll take a year off um, rather than force something. And I didn't know whether that would be for the Wonder stuff, whether it would be for a solo record, or as things have turned out, uh, Event Four One Four hmm. record of some sort. Um, so I was going to, I was going to try and get my class one HGV driver's license. I love to drive. Uh, When I'm doing solo tours, I am essentially doing the job of a delivery driver, just delivering myself (laughs) zigzagging around the UK. And um, I like, as I said before, I enjoy my own company. And so that was an idea uh, I was toying with through January and February. I'd I'd made a couple of calls to some friends that could point me in the right direction and then lockdown happened. So I didn't get that done. So, I did what I guess I'm supposed to be doing. I started writing. Um, I reacquainted myself with Morgan Nichols, who had been the bass player in Vent 414 in the mid-90s. We hadn't seen each other since the end of the 90s. The greatest bass
1: player I've ever seen on stage.
0: It's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. I, I st- you know, I've stood in many a room and on many a stage with Morgan playing, and I have no understanding of what he's doing, yeah. how he's doing it. And what's really beautiful, I don't think Morgan does. <laughs> I, I remember I used to be in, uh, in rehearsal sort of jam sessions with him and Pete Howard when we were doing Vent Form 4 in the 90s. And him and Peter get something going and I'd, you know, every single time they'd start getting something going, I'm like, what the hell is this? This is fantastic. And I go, Morgan, what key is it in? And he, he would just sort of smirk at me and go, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So I always liked it that, you know, he's just so supremely talented, but with no ego about it. Uh, It's just what he does. He is one of the very few, natural musicians that I've ever yeah. met, you know, it, it, it's not studies. It, it's just who he is. It's fantastic? So me and Morgan reacquainted at a Wonderstuff gig in December last year and, uh, and said, he'd got some instrumental ideas. He got kicking around and he said, Do you fancy putting your nasal wine on these and seeing if we can turn them into anything listenable? Uh, and Pete Howard is well up, was well up for it. Uh, cause Pete Howard is now the drummer in the Wonderstuff, So, when we got to lockdown, I, I thought, I'm going st- to start writing a couple of songs in the style of Vent Four, whatever that is. And Morgan's got a home studio. I've got a home studio. So I just started sending things to Morgan. And the, the very first thing we tried, I'm like, I, I actually got tearful when he sent me back. The, the bass part for, for this song I'd written. It was just so great to hear that sound of his and hear how he plays. And so there was a great sense of nostalgia for me, but just like, ah, oh, what a beautiful place to end up, you know, uh, in what none of us knew what 2020 was going to yeah. be at that point. And we've kept that going. So we we throw ideas at each other every couple of weeks. Pete Howard, a drummer, Vent force drummer, is unable to record at home and he doesn't enjoy programming drums. So I got my friend Luke Johnson, who I mentioned earlier from the band Low Lives, knowing that he'd lost the tour. So he was at home in Arizona. And I, and I know Luke's a great programmer. So I said, just to help me and uh, Morgan along, would you program the drums? So Luke's been involved in that. I think we've got um, six or seven Vent 414 ideas. And then again, when I asked Luke Johnson to do the programming for Vent 414, these are only demos, by the way. It'll be real drums and we finally get into a studio with Pete playing. Uh, then Luke said he'd got a bunch uh, of instrumentals he's been working on for a number of years and just said, do, do you fancy throwing your nasal wine on these as well? So um, I think we've. Uh, I'm probably up to seven or eight tracks with with Luke as well. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, they're, they're, Luke comes from a sort of hard rock background, more hard rock than I do anyway. Uh, there's a couple of them that I, I might pluck up the courage to ask him, if Vent 414 could have a, a shot at them. Um, or we might try and record them properly and, and Luke and I have a, a, a sort of partnership in that way for some sort of record or however you get music out to people mm. in the modern world. So at the moment, you, you know, you can hear all this stuff. I've got a Bandcamp page where, because my, my I have an appalling attention span. It's really, really short. So where I... I <laughs> I don't mind admitting that when I finish a piece of a piece of music I want instant gratification and um, that usually is going to a studio record it and plan to release a record or sit or stand in front of an audience and play this new song yeah. and of course I can do neither at the moment so I thought I'd start making these demos available on a band camp page so if you look up Miles Hunt's lockdown demo society you can find all that stuff there.
1: Wonderful. Miles, Am I right in saying, did Morgan have anything to do with Muse at any point? Yeah, he's still,
0: he's, he's still very much involved. I think Muse, again, Muse kind of got their timing right as well because they had a planned year off this year, which is why Morgan was available. So, Morgan's been working with Muse. I'm gonna well over
1: a decade, right? So this figures right because I went to the I, I, I live not too far from Chelmsford, so I went to the V Festival, um, yeah. many years ago, and and Muse come on, and so, something had happened to one of the relatives of the bass player, I believe. Yeah, and very nice. on like a week's notice, like I'm sure they said they've got their bass player on, and I was like right at the back, and I just thought that's Morgan, I'm sure of it, <laughs> and like. And I, I'm not a monster like Muse fan, but what I do know about Muse is it's quite complex sounding music. And to yeah. be able within a week to just jump up and <laughs> now that is impressive. Yeah. But I think maybe at
0: that point though, he, when, how long ago would you say that is?
1: Oh fuck. Two. Over 10 years ago, I reckon. Okay. Well that may have been his introduction to Muse.
0: I don't know. Um, But he he does their keyboards and their programming. Looks after the kind of the tech stuff because he's on stage with them when they play. So they they appear as a five piece. Right. Um, I don't think he does any of the sort of promotional stuff. And Morgan always hated doing like you know videos and photograph sessions and all that. So I I don't know whether that's a decision of Morgan's not to be involved in that or a decision of the band's. But either way, I know it will suit Morgan not to be you know uh, to be dragged into photo sessions and all that type of stuff so he may have already been working with them so right. subliminally he would have known all the inra- the arrangements and then
1: when that bass player need- needed a depth yeah Morgan's your guy you know do you know what like I um way way back up I, I run a venue in Essex and uh and we we had the senseless things play and I've also never seen a drunker man walk on stage and <laughs> knock it out the park like he'd <laughs> driven there and was stone cold sober. It was unbelievable what was in the dressing room to what started playing a bass. I was like, yeah. "Oh my god, how is he doing that?" I know he's.
0: The man's a mystery to me. I've never, I've never quite known anyone like him.
1: <laughs> All right, let's get on with a playlist. Um, track one, Miles. Can you tell me the song that you regard as having the greatest ever intro, please? I can. Um, I
0: toyed with this one. Uh, I was uh, when I was a kid. My what I wanted to do in music was be a drummer, uh, and I did that for probably my the first five years of my gig in life, until I found out that it's far too much of a responsibility being a band's drummer, and there's not enough showing off um, <laughs> available to you. So I was going to go with five years by David Bowie just because of that beautiful Mm -hmm. faded in drum riff that uh, I, I, you know, I remember painstakingly learning that when I was a kid, but I wanted to the way every single wonder stuff album, Oh, you see, now I've just thought. Okay, I'm going to stick with the one. So, what you I'm going to say. You have an honorable
1: mention, mate.
0: It's all right. Okay, all right. So, I'm going to choose because I heard this before the one that I just thought of. And it taught me a lesson um, that every album should, or when I go in to make an album, you have. A track that is very much the introduction to the album. It can never be a single, so with us, that's Redberry joytan and on the first album, and then you've got you know the backwards guitar, the little uh, um Richard Burton vocal sample, Shakespearean vocal sample that then fades into Redberry Joytan on hop. You've got all the cut up t v and radio sampled stuff that we did um and then that kicks into 30 years in the bathroom on uh, neville so so there has to be what was like, never loved
1: Elvis? what was it on there? well
0: never loved mission drive oh, but, of course it is yeah and that starts with sort of radio interference mm. uh and a bit of a, i think there's a hawkwin sample from quark strangeness and charm in there as well um And then on the fourth Wonder Stuff album, it's a change of your light bulb. And and I created this character called the Reverend Hellacious Boom Boom and do this ridiculous sort of uh, evangelical sort of preacher piss take thing. But the point being that you can't have track one as a single. It has to be a track that's going hello and welcome to this new project. And then that, And I think I believe this is true because of the Psychedelic Furs debut album and that introduction to the song India, which is John Ashton playing what I just thought was a bunch of random notes, improvised, covered in delay and phase or or a flange uh, effect. But one day, Malk Tris, the Wonderstuff guitarist, turned up at rehearsal and he played it. And it's... And I'd, it had never occurred to me that it was actually a piece of music. I thought it was this sort of in, improvised atmosphere. But, of course, it, it is, a, you know, it, it, you could score it out. It's a piece of music. And then it kicks into India, an amazing track itself, which has every signature that the psychedelic furs were at that, you know, that point in time the heavy thundering tom-toms, uh, the, all the flange guitars, that sort of nonchalance, Bowie-esque nonchalance in Richard Richard Butler's voice. And then, do you know the movie Basquat
1: about the New York uh, street artist? I know, and the soundtrack to that album is one of my favourite soundtracks ever.
0: Right, okay. Well, there's a scene in one of the New York parks and the the music that they use is that introduction to India. And I've got, just thinking about it now, I've got shivers going down my arms. Yeah. I'll never forget when I saw that film and I'm like, you know, you've got, you've got a, a squat walking through a park. And then there's this man, I'm like, what is it? What is it? Oh my God, they're using the intro to India. And it's, it's so what, and then I remember talking to Clint Mansell about it. We, we, we were on the phone a lot when we'd both seen, he was living in America and we'd both seen Basquat. and and it was like which one of them could say say sooner in the yeah. Did you see Basquat? What about India? Yeah. And, it, and it's so beautifully used. And ever since hearing that introduction to India, my mind is every album needs some sort of atmospheric setup. The, the my second choice would be, well, as you said, my honorary mention, that does exactly the same job. Would be this is the sea's opening track "Don't Bang the Drum" by the Waterboys. That has that beautiful, you know, sixteen pianos. The timing of the piano is always sixteens, and there's a trumpet, and then there's a hell of a drum uh, fill into uh, "Don't Bang the Drum." And again, every hair on my body standing on end just thinking about it. So that would be the greatest, the song with the greatest intro.
1: Very well answered there, Miles. Um, mm. So. I mean, you've nailed a fair few yourself, mate. Right. Um, and so, if we, I, I always ask um, musicians this on, on, on the podcast: when, when you write a song, mm-hmm. um, how much emphasis do you put on an intro? And has that changed from Hup to when you write now nah because of the way that people listen to music now? Nah, um, you know, he's, his radio was radio, a, a, a consideration back. there. It's quite a loaded question here, Miles, mm. but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I'm just wondering how, how, how you, know, you approach an intro and how is, how it's changed over the years in the way people listen to music. Well, with me, it hasn't changed at all. Um, and
0: I have no roadmap to writing a song at all. Um, I, I employ what I would call a variety of tricks, or little signatures of the of the way I write. When I'm writing, I never know what I'm writing. It's always looking, you know, into a darkened room and seeing what you can find. Uh, I often wished it wasn't so. I wished I did know uh, how to approach songwriting. I don't. It's still a mystery to me, and perhaps that's why I still enjoy it so much. Uh, that I probably have as many fails as I do successes. You know, I have equally as many songs that I just give up on. Um, I've never paid any attention to you know getting the vocal in in the first 20 seconds, which something like Radio One would have liked when, when we first came along, or not having a, a minute of instrumental music before a vocal comes in. However, I like all sorts of different approaches to songwriting. So when we wrote something like Caught in My Shadow or um, A Wish Away it didn't occur to us that both of those songs open with the chorus. It it wasn't planned that way. It was just, that was probably whoever bought the song. Well, those two songs, it would have been me. But when I took those songs into the room with the band, I didn't play them a verse first. I played them a chorus first, or it might well have been all I'd got was the chorus and then I'd say, "Well, let's just kick that around and then look out to the rest of the guys in the band and say, "Anyone got anything to follow it?" um so there are absolutely no rules no, I wouldn't play pay the blindest bit of attention to what is the current way that people consume music uh not interested uh, you know and i'm I'm only really ever writing for myself, yeah." You know, first and foremost, I'm trying to please myself, and then I, if if I if I have a success with an idea, then I want to share it. You know, I'm never writing for anyone else.
1: Hello, I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is, the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So. If you want to hear the songs, just go over to Spotify and search Off The Beat and Track Podcast and you can listen to all the songs because I've put playlists up for each of these. If you can't find it on there, I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode. So you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up get back to the podcast. See you on the other side. Track two miles. First song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you? Easy. Okay. And the emotion
0: that I experienced was terror. Um, and it was God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols. Okay. Um, <laughs> my dad used to buy The Enemy, and my elder brother, Russ, used to read it. I, I was 11 when God Save the Queen came out. My brother was 14, 15. And, um, with his pocket money my my brother bought god save the queen seven inch single and i'd heard it in his bedroom i think he'd even you know invited me into his bedroom said come and listen said no he hadn't he hadn't i hadn't heard i'd i'd heard it through the wall and so he went out one one afternoon and i snuck into his bedroom and i found it and i took it into my onto my record player in, in in my bedroom and i put it on and the the excitement of the music w- was fabulous, and then Leiden's voice came in, and I would liken it to I thought the gates of hell had been opened, and a terrifying demon had entered my room. I'd never heard a voice like it. I was fucking terrified of it. And so much so that it pinned me up the wall and I desperately wanted to get back to the deck and turn it off. Such was, you know, I'm 11 and I am seriously frightened and, um, and I had to just stay against the wall until it finished and the arm lifted. And I stood there and I thought to myself, that experience was fucking amazing. Let's do it again. It, you know, it's, it must be the kind of terror that people experience when they go on roller coasters and then that, you know, they get addicted to it. Yeah. I had a similar kind of thing with my relationship with riding motorbikes years ago but it was terror I was 11 and I was terrified of John Lydon's voice I honestly thought it was something that had been released from hell and it was fucking fantastic
1: and the cover as well was so stark as well wasn't yeah. it and it was yeah. so like you know uh, uh, you know uh, as a young boy that must have just been such a smack round the chops to hear that kind of ferocity and anger and yeah and, and, and but we've such fucking great pop tunes as well. just yeah. like Really infectious, you know, yeah. I mean,
0: melodically and- it's brilliant. The lyrics are brilliant. When you consider the age that he was, when he wrote those lyrics, they're so on point and it, you know, it's not an abusive, uh, you know, a tirade. It's, it's an intellectual introduction to a debate. Mm. And he was what? 18, 19 when yeah. he wrote that, Crazy. which is just, you know, and not college educated or yeah. anything. Just phenomenal uh, the artwork was this are they are they really are they are they really shredding into the royal family yeah. which i i did i 'd so had no experience of any yeah. kind of media doing that before yeah. and, and then simply on um you know an aesthetic point of view that I think it was the first record i'd ever seen that w- when you took it out the at the sleeve that the label also had complementary artwork to the sleeve whereas everything I'd, I'd got a lot of records by then but everything was you know a label imprint it was polydor or, or yeah. rack or, or, or whatever but so there was so much to that experience of just that beautiful piece of seven inch you know media it was yeah, unbelievable yeah
1: brilliant so was you mentioned your older brother so was was you exposed to lots of music growing up like was there was there records on in the house a lot Mm-hmm. well dad was um a jazz drummer when he was a kid so there would be a lot of jazz
0: on he's also a great fan of british uh classical composers you know such as algar and the like so there would be uh and he's also a big bob dylan fan as well so that that would be kind of what was coming out of the lounge on a sunday when he fired up his kick ass stereo and we weren't allowed in there um also, his brother, my uncle Bill, had been in a late lineup of The Move and oh, then wow. went on to. Yeah, and he's in the original lineup of Electric Light Orchestra with Roy Wood, and then him and Roy leave that and form Wizard. So my uncle was in Wizard. So, you know, in 1972, when. I don't remember any mention of. I was only six in 1972, but I remember him being on him being on top of the pops doing ballpark Incident and and it being on the radio and him giving us you know we're off to see the Wizard T-shirts and badges and stickers and stuff like that.
1: I mean that's pretty so, cool, right? Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. So it, my my my, uh, my fate was sealed really. Very you know under the age of ten that I was going to be in a band. So you know you got them a pretty varied taste of music from my dad. The fact that my uncle was a pop star that my brother was three and a half years older than me. And so he he was a great age to pr- not go to all the gigs that he would have liked to have gone to, but to be aware of the fact that there's a new Clash single out next week. There's a new Roots single out. There's a new Jam single out. Um, so, yeah, uh, and he was pretty generous with letting me borrow his records and, uh, and the like. And before that, you know, so from the age of six, seeing Uncle Bill on Top of the Pops, getting into Slade, feeling that you know i'm from the midlands so there's that incredible sense of pride that seemingly the biggest you know pop and rock band as opposed to a metal band in the uk were from our neighborhood it felt pretty special it was pretty special so yeah i, I yeah my fate was sealed really very early
1: <laughs> okay well i want to pick back up on top of the pop slater because okay um but it, it, what we'll do next is while we're um way back then let's talk um the song reminds you of your time at school
0: i'm gonna it's gonna be a, another one from the punk days and i think it'll be i think i'm gonna go for peaches by the stranglers and i, th- I think it's got to be a, str- a stranglers track because I, when i went into senior school at age 11 um i didn't get put. it was you know it was 1500 kids in my school i think and i'd gone from quite a, a small primary school And none of the kids from my class at the primary school, I wasn't placed with any of them in my new tutor group at the senior school. I was in a classroom of 30 strangers. And there was this interesting looking guy with a skinhead and a Harrington jacket and Doc Martens. And we sort of clocked each other at that tender age of 11 and like, okay, me and you are going to be mates. And we're still mates to this day. His name's Nigel Broadbent and we loved all the punk and new wave uh records that came out between you know that meeting in 1977 and going through school and graduating onto things like Echo and the Bunnymen but the stranglers would have be, been well yeah are his absolute favorite band of that era and of course it has an expletive in it which there was another version done for radio play it has the oh shit line in it it has the clitoris word in it which we of course sniggering little idiot 11 year olds thought was highly amusing and naughty um so and and it was on the radio it was in the charts and the band had a logo you could scribble on all your books and and it was a very unusual piece of music you know yes it's a four four rock track but with uh you know led really by a, a bass riff uh a really angry vocal not not in not in the way that john Lydon's was terrifying but this just sounded like a really angry bloke yeah uh and then the beautiful keyboard work of uh, dave greenfield you know set it aside from so much of the other punk stuff that was around so it it i would say it'd be the stranglers or it would be something like you know looking after number one by the boomtown rats which is kind of like the pop end of punk But I enjoyed that greatly. So I'm going to go for Peaches by the Strangers.
1: Okay, great shout. Um, How was school, Miles? Did you enjoy it? No.
0: Well, I, I enjoyed it in so much as it was a social event. I mean, and that's what, that's all school was to me. And because there was such a vast amount of kids at my comprehensive school, you could sort of go through those five years pretty much unnoticed which is what i did i got no qualifications out of it um, you know i didn't pass any exams i was expelled actually a few months before i should have left anyway um what's that uh, I, it, it was claimed that i was the, <laughs> the the ringleader of an unruly mob yes i was I, I was in an unruly mob but i was far from the ringleader uh, and the school was atrocious you know it was they my brother had been expelled from it before i had for similar you know reasons we 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 had our own personalities was mine and my brother's problem to them and we weren't we 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 got the academic smarts we just weren't interested and couldn't see the point because we were going to be kicked out into Thatcher's Britain where there were no jobs anyway so fuck yeah. it was kind of our attitude and the most important thing that was happening in society was punk rock and new wave and they weren't teaching that at school yeah. so we we had no interest in it um so in terms of seeing mates and uh, and and making a lifelong friend like nigel broadbent school was great but uh putting up with the sort of petty bourgeois control that teachers like to have over you was uh, was it was a vexation and an irritation but you know I, I never i mean i got caned and stuff like that and then as i said finally expelled but uh yeah i could i, I don't think that as a grown up I would have suffered for not attending school.
1: You're a confident kid.
0: No, I was painfully, painfully shy. I I was all right in a mob, which is really, um, which I think is one of the other, apart from music, it's one of the things that attracted me into into being in a band, into being in a gang, you know, safety in numbers.
1: Yeah. All right, well, let, let, let's, let's stay back in the, uh, around that time, and I, I want to know what the first record you remember buying from uh, a record shop was.
0: With my own money, going up to the counter, it was uh, Boots, the chemist, that used to have a record counter in. Yep. Uh, this would be in Chelmsley Wood on the outskirts of Birmingham, and uh, it was Radar Love by Golden Earring.
1: I don't know that. Uh, Tell me about that. What? I don't know it. Trevor. I've been driving all
0: night, my hands wet on the wheel. it's half past. You don't know this. I don't my think baby so. calling, I need you here. It's. A, I think they're a Danish rock band called uh, Golden Earring. Check it out. I mean, Radar Love is stunning, and it's it hangs around. Uh, A sort of bluesy bass line And then it builds It has a little bit of a brass section in it And it builds to this almighty crescendo There's a a drum solo of sorts And this was a hit single It had a drum solo in it for Christ's sakes and uh and on top of the pops i don't know whether they were at top of the pops or it was filmed for a danish or european tv show but for the crescendo the last beat of the final bar the drummer leapt over the kit and landed on his feet it was incredible <laughs> yes. so it, it's a wonderful wonderful track uh, the extended version that's uh, well i suppose the correct version that's on the on the album uh, is remarkable but I mean, it's a butchered edit for the British uh, singles market. But even that is just utterly brilliant. And I think that at the time as well was when I started to notice production that um, that I realized I I thought it was the label's fault. I remember thinking at one point, everything on CBS sounded tinny and crummy and everything on EMI sounded rich and expansive. And there might be an element of truth that I haven't, gone back and check, but it might have been to do with which mastering engineers those record companies were using. I mean, things like uh, Give em Enough Rope by The Clash is such a thin-sounding record uh, originally, um, whereas Tom Robinson bands Power in the Darkness, which is the same year, is it's got loads of low-end. It, it, you know, it could be to do with the production. I think there's something uh, answerable in the mastering it, uh, as well. But I mention that because Radar Love, had the same sort of you know as a four piece rock band they had the same sort of setup as Slade but they just sounded a little bit more expensive and, and I think that was me noticing production at a young age.
1: So at a young age was you sort of deconstructing records then in your head? Yeah, yeah it's it it is um it's a curse really. Um, because
0: it's how I, li- it's how I still listen to music. You know, people will often, you know, either be at my house or we'll, we'll be at somewhere where we're, where we're able to play music. Like Milo, listen to this, tell me what you think of this. And I'm listening to like the compression on the bass drum <laughs> for, uh, for the first 45 seconds and have completely missed what might have been an amazing Brilliant. vocal intro, or a great uh, chordal shift into a bridge or a chorus because I'm thinking that nah, hate the compression on the kick drum.
1: <laughs> it's a hell. curse. Yeah, it's fucking <laughs> horrible. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you've you mentioned Top of the Pops again um, uh, 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 while well, 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 I was talking about them. So I'm, I'm going to ask you uh, for someone that grew up. Are you seeing, you know, a, a, an uncle on there? And and and, and like I guess most. You know, young people, it was an institution every week, you know. It was where you got to see your pop stars, you know. You, you yeah. got to, you know, hear records that, you you know, a lot of the time you couldn't afford. Um yeah. How was it for you? I always ask people that have been on here that have been on top <laughs> of the pops, how that experience was getting on top of the pops and did it deliver what you thought it was going to deliver? Well,
0: none of us wanted to do it. I think me well, and... Well, because the clash had never done it. Yeah. And, um, and if you were going to do it, the, the, uh, you know what, it was great pre punk as you, for all the reasons you just said to be able to see David Bowie on a Thursday night in your own home was incredible. Uh, and Mark Bolan, but by the time punk came along, it, it, you know, it was year zero. It had ripped up the, the, the previous rule book and those were the new set of rules that I stuck with. Um, and so the Clash had never done it. Uh, the Pistols, I think they showed a, a, a video that the Pistols had, had, made, you know, had made for themselves. I think Pretty Vacant was on there. There may, may have been other Pistols appearances. I doubt it, though, actually. But Pretty Vacant was on there, and, I, of course, I enjoyed seeing that. But they weren't in the studio, and apparently the Clash were asked to be on there a bunch of times or invited, and they always turned it down, uh, thinking, I guess, I, I guess they thought it was below them. I don't know. I, uh, I, I could research this and see what their thoughts were on it at the time. But anyway, they never did it. And then, of course, the jam did it at every opportunity, and I adored the jam. I, but for some reason, this idea of the clash stuck with me. Um, and Public Image Limited did it. They, uh, Def Disco. Definitely, Amazing. Yeah, um, yeah. And that was a stunning performance. But, you know, you got Joel Wobble sitting on a bar stool with a pair of earphones around his neck.
1: And a black tattoo. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: see, see, this is how it, you know, it, it does affect you when you're young. And I, I just thought, and I think the bass thing, you know, the original bass player in the Wonder Stuff, Rob Jones, I think he was probably, I think Martin and Malk would have looked forward to it. And if I hadn't have been so militant about it, they might have even enjoyed themselves. But I made sure nobody fucking enjoyed themselves. <laughs> um, because I absolutely didn't want to do it and we we were made to do it basically um because but by which time we'd already toured America and and to tour America we needed a, a shitload of cash from our record company polydor you know they called it tour support so and i'm talking like 40 grand in you know to take the four piece band uh, and probably four maybe five crew hire a tour bus and drive around America for six or seven weeks when the gigs, you know, in those early days, they're not paying for the tour's not even close to breaking even, so the the label picked up the shortfall. Now, when I'm sitting there having done that and had the time in my life and can't wait to go back, uh then Top of the Pops comes along because we didn't get invited on there until Hop, our second album, and the the, the, the first song we did on there was "Don't Let Me Down Gently." Um, it was spelled out to me that, well, if you want to keep going on these American jaunts that you enjoy so much, you've got to give us something back. You know, we've got to get that money back. And in the UK, love it or hate it, the best way of getting into as many homes as you possibly can is top of the pops. So, you know, strap your little suit on, get on the fucking stage and do your miming. And uh, <laughs> But I made sure that I hated it. You know, I, it, 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 it could have been, You know, I, 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 we did it six, maybe seven times. It could have been, it could have been, Uh, but I'd already gone making sure that there was no fucking way on earth was I or anyone
2: with me going to enjoy this.
0: (laughs) So yeah, we had to do it every time we were invited. And the, the final time was for Hot Love Now. Yeah, and and that one I said absolutely not. just fucking, but I knew I was leaving the band at the end of. that that album period anyway. So I went missing. I just fucked off and no, I didn't tell anyone. I told my wife at the time where I was. So she wasn't worried, but I didn't tell the rest of the band that I didn't tell the manager. And, uh, and they, the the band were fine with it. The band knew I was going to go. They knew I was going to disappear, but they didn't know where, but my my manager didn't. And it was a cruel thing to do to him because he had to take all the flack from Polydor. But I just said, I ain't fucking doing it. I told you I ain't doing it. And, eventually i didn't
1: (laughs) Uh, i I asked you if you was a confident kid at school and 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 i've seen i've seen the one stuff many many times i've I've seen vent and you look like a confident kid on stage um did uh, as, as as a as a crad member that's how it comes across did did you growing confidence um or you know is it something that you have to sort of try and switch on when you go on stage how do you you know how's that confidence with with gigs and stuff it's an act i mean
0: from, from the beginning from the early days um it's an act simple as that i just i just became a different character to go on stage with and i was given the confidence to do that by being in this little gang you know the other three guys that i was on stage with the crew that traveled with us and, 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 you know, made everything happen, uh, uh, you know, big, you know, there's big personalities in the wonder stuff, you know, Rob Jones was an incredible personality and Martin and malt were pretty confident, you know, Mal sort of quieter and more genteel, but still c- confident. And, and in those days, you know, when, when you were gigging around the UK in 86 and 87, there was also something beyond the music that you had to consider Like, can you handle yourself? And uh, Malcolm Bob could certainly handle themselves physically. You know, uh, we got run out of towns by the police. We got run out of towns by, you know, uh, security uh, uh, universities. That was essentially the rugby team that wanted to beat the shit out of us because we've got ripped jeans and long hair. So be so, so I got a certain confidence from being in a gang, but, but the gobshite on stage who I know was completely over the top. I could have tempered it a little bit, <laughs> um, but I, I just went with let's go completely over the fucking top and tell the audience that they're cunts before we've even struck a note. Uh over the years it, it tempered and also over the years that uh, invented confident miles hunt actually uh I became him unpleasantly for a number of years. Um and then I've sort of I've, I sort of got the balance about right but I'm I still feel I still have bouts of shyness in you know I was the other, the other night I was in a neighbor's garden I you know two two of them I know really well two or three of the other people I don't know so well and I I retreat back into shyness uh, because uh, the things that I can talk about with with confidence are not sort of dinner party conversations with sure. regular people that have actually worked for a living. Sure. You know, me, me telling road stories of getting busted for pot in new Orleans. Yeah. Isn't the sort of thing that you can bring up, <laughs> you know, I just think, you know, what's he on about? So, <laughs> so I just sort of go quiet and retreat. So yeah, I can switch between the, the I think the factory settings me is, is, is shy and with very little confidence.
1: Okay. so, I'm going to ask you now for track five miles, a song the mm-hmm. soundtrack your years clubbing. <laughs> you assumed that I was a clubber. Well, when uh, I say that, that doesn't necessarily mean kind of like you know chrome laced discotheques <laughs> of the of, uh, you know of the early eighties. It can be yeah you know, dirty sweaty rock and indie clubs.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So I
1: did get it. Um, so this would be
0: uh, I'm think I'm going back to. <clears throat> where, you know, from around about 16, 17 years of age, I'm able to get into Birmingham nightclubs uh, in the, I suppose we called them alternative nightclubs Mm -hmm. at the time, that were, you know, the origins of goth, uh, I suppose. And this this was one out of two tracks, really, that would guarantee me heading for the dance floor. Uh, I've gone with The Colts' She Sells Sanctuary, which I still think is an utterly remarkable piece of work that I still don't really understand it. I know it has an A part and a B part, and then it has a break, and then there's a sort of a C part, which is made of the A part. So I can kind of understand it, you know, and I've been in a band with Billy Duffy, and Billy Duffy showed me how to play it. And <clears throat> it's just, But it, it's just a very unusual song in its construction, um, I still wouldn't know whether Asprey's doing a verse and a chorus, or, or is it just a collection of hooks that he knows where to put them, to use them to their best advantage? Um, and then you've got Mark Brzenki, um, who playing the drums on, on that, who uh, had been or was in and continued to be, in, and I think perhaps even still is, in big country. And he's a wonderfully, you know, he, 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 knows, he knows what he's doing. And and they must have had a conversation that like we're making this track for the dance floor. Whereas, you know, a couple of albums after that they're obvious they're making tracks to go into that vein of sort of early AC D C and stuff. Yeah. That this is for a harder crowd. I think they I think they knew they were going for a dance floor track when they when they worked on Sanctuary. And I just think it's incredibly unusual. It's a beautiful track to be half halfway drunk to and spin around and lose all your inhibitions and Keep trying to make everyone else on the dance floor believe that you know what the lyrics are when in in fact having been listening to it for thirty years,
1: I still don't know what they are just like, in a world.
0: <laughs> um, what a
1: fucking intro as well
0: oh god i mean exactly and th- and there was that you know you could be standing at the bar or sitting on a group you know at a table with a group of friends, and the dj would just drop that have you got enough time then, to get there before the snare yeah exactly <laughs> everyone's pints would hit the fucking table and you'd all be off to the floor and you're right
1: as soon as that snap <laughs> yeah.
0: and there's an awful lot of hair swinging around it's just gorgeous do you know what it's miles I,
1: i've been playing it in my club for probably 30 years and it yeah. sounds as fresh now yeah. as it ever did it hasn't aged in the slightest it sounds no. as vital as fucking huge it's a perfect record
0: yeah and it and it is i think it's like i was saying you know like mark pedenki the drummer is a beautifully technical drummer um but he just fucking plays it straight like like it's a dance track yeah he plays it incredibly straight apart from that gorgeous fill after the, the middle eight drop down um but, 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 but which i still probably when i'm programming drums on new songs i still use that feeling everything that I do. Um, but he, so he plays it straight and it's, you know, it's that clicky, it's got the click on the front of the kick drum and it's got the, on the end of the drum as well. And uh, it, it's, it's just, yeah. It's, yeah. I'm not surprised you're still playing it in clubs. And I think if I w- could ever be tempted into a, 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 a dance or a discotheque um, <laughs> and I heard it, I think I would have exactly the same reaction when I hear those opening chords, I would have to run to the dance floor. <laughs>
1: Wonderful. Track six, Miles. Favorite song from an artist from your home county? Okay, well, I did. Um, the Wonder Stuff did an album probably seven
0: or eight years ago now of cover versions of artists from the Midlands. And we called it From the Midlands with Love. So we cover Duran Duran and uh, the beat, UB40. Uh, we We miss out like zeppelin and uh, and Sabbath because i they, those those bands didn 't really touch me when I was mm-hmm. younger. Uh, we cover Slade and we had the absolute audacity to take on dex 's midnight runners and I should really say in the, in the answer to you know the favorite song from an artist from my home county should be Blackberry Way by the move because it 's extraordinary. Uh, in every sense. Uh, yeah. And I perhaps really should pick a Slade track, but I wanted to go with just something a little less obvious. And uh, so I've gone for there, there, my dear by Dex's midnight runners. Now I will make the claim that searching for the sun, the searching for the young soul rebels, the debut album by Dex's midnight runners is the greatest debut album by anybody it is fucking perfect again. Right. So it opens with dance stands or is on, on the album is it called burn it down? It's, a, it's the same song, but they give, there's two different titles they use. And it starts with the radio being tuned in, which I think was probably an influence to us for the beginning of hop. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you hear a little bit of it's either God save the queen or anarchy in the UK and another couple of tracks of the era. And then Kevin Rowland comes in with, for God's sake, burn it down.
1: Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba!
0: And from that moment on however the next many minutes 38 42 minutes it's just it, it, it's untouchable production wise it is beautiful it is clear it is powerful <clears throat> um, having that big brass section you know they were they were coming out at the same time you know we we very much thought of them as a new wave punk band you know uh, but it's its heart was in soul music um, and Kevin's vocal delivery on every track is it's it's just beautiful. And it's unsurpassable, insurpassable. And when, so we took on doing a version of there, there, my dear. And it's a pretty straight, you know, using their arrangement. Uh, But I I had to, well, well, what I'm going to end up saying is when, once I'd learned the lyrics and I'm doing the vocal takes, I, I cried several times whilst doing it, um, whilst actually singing it and you had to stop and take a breath just because there's so much emotion required to deliver that lyric. Um, And so for that reason, I'm going to choose it because I I suppose I could have used that as the, you know, when you said the first song you remember hearing that produced an emotion, but I, I don't think I fully understood the genius of There There My Dear until we deconstructed it and tried to do our own version of it. Um, it's just so intense. It's remarkable.
1: It's a truly remarkable album. Yeah. Uh, it's your last track, Miles, mm-hmm. and, um, and you can play DJ now. And okay. uh, And it's a song that many may not know that you would like them to hear. Okay. Well, it's a really interesting
0: it's – it's a great question to ask. I don't think I've ever been asked that question. And it's also um, – there's a certain synchronicity to being asked that question at this point in time. For years, I have loved the song these days written by Jackson Brown. Now I didn't know it when it came out in the seventies. And I think the very first version I heard of it wasn't by Jackson Brown. I think the very first version I heard of it was around about 1997, 1998. And the song was being covered by it's a studio project that is managed by a great producer and drummer called Anton fear. Uh, and they call themselves the golden Palomino's and, and they, they use various artists. So, you know, Jack Bruce has played with them. Um, Nicky Scopolitis, uh, Knox Chandler, John Lydon song on it, Nicole Blackman. And is, you know, so it's, it's guest musicians and guest vocalists, but, Anton Fear is holding the whole thing together as a drummer and, and producing it. And there are some truly remarkable, and most of it is original songs. You know, they they all write the songs. But on the, I think it's the second Golden Palambino's album. Um, they do a cover of Jackson Brands these days. And I suppose it's quite Beatles-esque in its, it's this beautiful descending chord structure, but it just has, just fucking heartbreaking lyrics, which I think I've got. Have I got the lyrics up on a computer yet? They were the other day. All right. Okay. I've got the lyrics up because I've finally done a cover version of it um, in recent weeks. And it's this last line that is just, is just insane. It goes, don't confront me with my failures. I have not forgotten them, which obviously in context of the song it's incredibly powerful but as a last line don't confront me with my failures i have not forgotten them i just think he's so beautifully tragic yeah. um and so um nico from that we know from the velvet underground she did a cover version of it uh, probably sometime in the 70s which has got a really lovely string arrangement on it um so i i think i've got four or five different versions by different artists and when I was um, working with a guy called Andres Carew and, uh, and, and Michael Ferentino, a um, couple of friends of mine out in New Jersey in the States, I had a band with them rather egotistically called the Miles Hunt Club in the <laughs> uh, in the early 2000s. And we, I, I co-wrote with Michael. Um, we did an album called the Miles Hunt Club. Um, it's mostly songs that I've written. But I co-wrote a couple with Michael, and we also did um a song of michael's that he'd already released with his with his own band the amazing meat project a song called love will make you sorry and it, it, it's a ballad um that's not not the sort of thing you would expect me to to sing i've i always said to michael it who is a Prince fan. I always said to him, I, I can just hear Prince doing this. Prince would have fucking killed this tune. Be, um, anyway, so I had a crack at it, but I, when I went over to the States to record the album, I'm, on my list of things to, to do on this album was in the, in 2000. This was this 20 years ago was to tackle a version of these days by Jackson Brown, which is a ballad really, you know? Um, so, but because we'd done Michael's "Love Can Make You Sorry," I didn't want to go and put another ballad on the song, so we we didn't even get round to trying these days. But during the lockdown, the producer of that album and and drummer and bass player, as it was as well, Andres Carew, he said to me early on in lockdown, "You know, you got your studio, so he's he's in Queens in New York, and he's like, I'm bored out of my head. Do you want to just do some?" some tracks let's just do some fun cover versions together so we did um he suggested doctor my eyes uh, which i only knew by the jackson five but it's uh it's a jackson brown song as well and i said okay if we're going to do jackson brown song can we finally get round to doing these days and uh this week he's just sent me a final mix of it and uh it's sweet and we got Michael Ferentino playing guitar on it so it's like the missing track from the album that we recorded 20 years ago we've actually finally got round and done uh this year uh if you don't know it look look it up it's it it's beautiful go with the Jackson Brown version then I would go with the Nico version um and then see if you can find that golden palomino's version and then at some point later this year i'm i'm sure we'll release our version but lyrically it's beautiful In, you know i've written three books now my the, my the books called the wonderstuff diaries which are you know my autobiographies as it were and um i was going to you know when people like do dedications at the beginning of books i i, I just wanted to put all of the lyrics to these days to the yeah. final one, because the, the, the three books that I've done, the third one's kind of like the saddest and most depressing of the three books. And I just thought that final line, you know, don't confront me with my failings. I have not forgotten them. Um, would, would have summed up that whole book that yeah. those two lines, I could have saved all my time, not written the book and just go, this is how I feel about this period of my life. So yeah, these days by Jackson Brown.
1: Wonderful. Um, before we, um, wrap things up miles as um we we start to see ourselves coming out of the the, the lockdown scenario we, we find ourselves in what's what's kind of coming up what's what's the sort of the first things you're going to do you're going to try and get back out and play as soon as you can no
0: no my parents are, are 18 in september and um they have underlying health conditions so i have to consider they live about seven mile away from where i live i like to see them every week so no, it is not my intention to get out and gig as soon as we can. And I think, um, I don't think anybody's going to be able to do that, to be quite honest. No. Uh, it's not looking good. I was talking to a great friend of mine in San Francisco last night who's a touring sound engineer it has been for 40 years. And I'm like, Frank, can you see any chinks of light? And he's like, Milo, my friend, no, I ain't, I ain't seen anything. Uh, you know, we've seen some great venues of the grassroots venues in this country, getting their ass kicked this week. Um, yeah. We are going to, you know, potentially, I mean, it's terrible, absolutely appalling for, for the people that own and, and, and work at those venues appalling for all the young bands that are now out there learning their chops. Uh, you know, the greats, Yeah, whether it's like where it's Johnny Lydon or David Bowie, they all learned their chops playing clubs and small venues. That's why they were so fucking brilliant by the time we got to see them. And yeah. so young people that are you know that have that plan for their life these venues are being stripped away we're we're potentially being robbed for years to come of the great talent that that we deserve and and that the uk is historically fucking brilliant at producing it's really worrying times
1: miles thanks so much for your time thank you Stuart. i really enjoyed myself there you go what an episode what a top fella, Miles Hunt. Um, huge thanks to Miles for giving up his time to do that. Um, massive thanks to you for listening. Um, really appreciate the fact that you listen, to support, and I've seen you all retweeting and sharing and, and, and recommending. So it's so kind of you to do that. Really, really appreciate it. And, uh, and yeah, like I say, if you're new to this podcast, this was the first one you've listened to, go and have a a route around in the, uh, in the back catalogue um, because you're going to find loads of stuff that you're going to enjoy if you enjoyed this. Um, I'm back next week. Um, in the meantime, stay safe, be nice, and uh, yeah, see you soon. Bye-bye. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing. www.sosclothing.co.uk Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15. B-E-A-T-1-5. And that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk Official sponsors of Off The Beat & Track Podcast. It's Off The Beat & Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me stew with it.